Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact Podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. This week, I want to talk about failure. So this is something that we all experience on a fairly regular basis, uh, whether in our personal or professional lives. And I would argue that uh, as researchers, this is part and parcel of the job, far more than it is for many other professions, whether it is grants, rejections, paper rejections, uh, or uh, student evaluations, the list goes on and on. This is just part of week-to-week life in the academy. And so we need to grow fairly thick skins. And if we can't, we need to learn how to learn from and ideally value our failures, our rejections, the things that go wrong. Uh, Now, I've talked previously about how we can use uh, a framework from my research to become more resilient researchers, and I want to dive in uh, to one part of that framework, which is the transformation part, to think this week about how we can totally transform how we view failure so that this is something that we welcome, that we embrace, and that we find a deep form of joy in. Uh, Now, that might sound a bit alien, a bit strange, but, uh, but for me, this is incredibly powerful stuff because it is so much part and parcel of everyday life. We need to find ways to to value and perhaps enjoy is too strong a word, but uh, to, to value and uh, and find the good in the things that uh, that go bad for us. This week's podcast is inspired by two things. Uh, first of all, there is a, a Twitter thread that I followed last week, um, and I make a, a minor contribution towards that really inspired me. Um, So this is by uh, the account, uh, it's called The PhD Depression, so it's ph underscore d underscore oppression. Maybe have a look for me at Prof Mark Reed and see my uh, my contribution, that's the easiest way to find the original tweet. But just looking underneath uh, this this tweet, there are some genuinely inspiring things. Now, of course, you have a community of people here um, who uh, are interested in the Academy. And the tweet simply reads, retweet with something the person you were five years ago would be proud of about you now. And uh, so I'm going to read a couple of the things that, that I found inspiring uh, from this, um, maybe more than a couple. Uh, and uh, I'll just warn you now, one of these uh, has actually brought a tear to my eye, um, but it's inspiring as well. So uh, this is uh, the first one's David Hanak. I maybe won't tell you the names of everyone, but um, you know that paper you were going to do one more experiment for and then submit it? Well, it got published. Well done. Last week. Next one uh, is, your hobby is alive because you came up with a hundred-year-old forgotten cure to save him from a deadly superbug. You launched a new project to ensure others have access to phage therapy and wrote a memoir about the ordeal, which included being open about living with ASD and PTSD. I survived against all odds. I learned that divorce will not guarantee you happiness, but... Surely it brings an end to unhappiness, puts things in perspective, and motivates you towards PhD completion. You ran a marathon and got in great shape. I finally know what the F is wrong with me, and I'm working on it. Hi, the person I was five years ago, trapped, confused, defensive, fearful. 
you'd be proud that I am now finally friends with you. Still doing research despite depression screaming at me that I was incapable and incompetent for much of those five years, and thankfully I've now rekindled the love I had for my subject in the first place. Simply, I came out. Another simple one, I can afford to pay my bills, all of them. I certainly remember that feeling uh, <laughs> when I got to that point. Uh, you took the chance and now you're a PhD. Doing it while raising a kid was tough, but it was worth it a thousand times. Five years ago, I was hospitalised and I didn't think I would live to see the next year. Now, I'm at my dream school, fully funded, out of the closet with my family, surrounded by a wonderful, supportive group of people that I admire and adore, actually planning for a future. And for me, it is simply, to the person I was five years ago, you will still be alive. You will be in love and loved. And you will know peace you cannot imagine now. It's a pretty cool exercise. Do it uh, for yourself. Uh, write a little note, a few words, a sentence to the person you were five years ago. And just breathe out that sense of perspective you get. Uh, and uh, yeah, another exercise to think about from this is, well, what would I write to the person five years from now? What would I hope uh, I would be saying um, at that point? There is a deep seam of hope in these tweets. A deep joy born of deep pain. And a community of people propping each other up as they speak of their own pain and progress, which is so different to the competitive, boastful spirit that you see in so much of social media, and I would argue in so much of academic dialogue and culture, where we tend to only celebrate and manicure, perhaps, our successes. In this two-part episode, I want to use some ideas that I've been thinking about from philosophy to explore the positive role that failure can and should play in academic life. It is, after all, part of the furniture. Uh, it's something that we will experience, uh, if not on a day-to-day -day basis, then on at least a week-to-week -week basis. Uh, and very often, uh, the failures uh, are of our own making. These are failures to live up to our own perfectionistic expectations or of the unrealistic expectations that others put on us that drive our imposter syndrome and make us keep working beyond what is reasonable to just feel like we are good enough to deserve the titles that we have. In the first part, I'm going to think about how we pick our battles and choose to do things that might be high risk, but are high reward in terms of expressing our values and how to know when to stop fighting uh, and lose a battle in line with our values. I think we're all going to be faced with decisions at some point, uh, perhaps very soon, where to do nothing will compromise our values, but to do something could in fact risk our career or even worse. None of us succeed at everything, and so there comes a time when we realise we've picked a battle we cannot win, and in the same way that we chose to embark on that journey in line with our values, we need a way to withdraw from the process in a way that retains our values, our self-esteem and our integrity. 
And in the second part, I want to think more deeply about how we step back, withdraw, change tack, and how we can reframe that failure and defeat as something that more deeply affirms our values than anything that we've done so far in the battles we've been fighting. And I'm going to draw on philosophy uh, to do that. Uh, it's a philosophy, a philosophy of pessimism, in fact, um, but uh, the insights are far from pessimistic. They are, for me, profoundly optimistic, and I hope profoundly useful. The second experience <clears throat> that has uh, prompted me to think uh, so deeply about failure and defeat uh, is a fairly bruising of failure uh, that I've had uh, at work uh, in the last week. And without saying more than, uh, than I should, uh, in summary, I stood up to someone who was more powerful than me and, uh, and I lost the battle uh, pretty spectacularly. Uh, these things happen. Uh, and so I've been drawing on everything that I've learned that I talked to you about a few episodes ago uh, when it comes to resilient resilience. How can I make sure that I uh, maintain my psychological resilience uh, despite the fact that, uh, that some of this stuff now is pretty humiliating? It's very challenging uh, to deal with uh, and, uh, and not take uh, the kind of dip that I might have taken um, in former years in response to a challenge as, as deep as this. Now, uh, if you remember, uh, there are three types of resilience that I think we can choose from when we are faced with challenge. And what I want to do uh, this week and next week is to uh, have a think about the third of these, this, this deepest form of resilience that I would describe as, as transformation. So the first idea is that uh, this is resilience through strength. So uh, I gain as many skills, I make as many powerful friends, um, I get as much resource or whatever it is to become as strong as possible. And in that position of strength, I am resilience, resilient. Uh, it doesn't matter what gets thrown at me, the chances are I will be able to withstand the storm because I've built uh, my walls high enough and, uh, and strong enough. Uh, and of course, great, uh, if you can do that, uh, but very often uh, strong uh, approaches like this become both strong and brittle, uh, and you can't predict when something is strong enough that actually it breaks that wall, um, and then you're left with uh, very little uh, in the way of recourse. Uh, or, or, or bouncing back. Uh, and that is the second form of uh, resilience. It's this bounce back that I'm adaptable. Uh, when, uh, when things are so uh, challenging that they overcome my defences, uh, I've got a plan B uh, and I know that I can bounce back and I can do things differently and I can still get to that, uh, that end point. Uh, so uh, I'm still on course uh, and, and it works. But transformation is completely different. Transformation says, well, you know what, uh, the, the strength strategy isn't going to work. Uh, I don't think I can bounce back from this. There is no plan B if I lose this, if this doesn't work out. And so is there a way in which I can not only transform what I do, but transform the end point to say, well, actually, is there a deeper goal that I could try and achieve that in fact would be more important, more satisfying and better than the thing that I was originally trying to achieve? And can I reframe this whole thing and actually grow deeper as a result of that, uh, that failure? Uh, and uh, I hope that you can all think of examples of, of where, this, uh, that, where this, this happens. But let me give you a couple of other examples just so I can hopefully illustrate what I mean by transformation before I think about the how uh, of this in, in more depth.
So I had a project where we had to do integrated predictive modeling and we discovered that we couldn't build the model. So this was now a, a very large research council funded project and we were facing failure in the face. We couldn't do it. It was not possible. We'd bidden off more than we could chew. Uh, and it was pretty terrifying, to be honest. Um, I was in charge of the project um, and it was in that place of darkness, in that uh, place of terror, that I delved deeper than I had ever delved into the philosophy of science and had a conversion experience at an epistemological level where I realised that actually, why was it so important that we were able to so precisely predict what was going to happen? And in fact, I realised that whatever we predicted would inevitably be precisely wrong because these were complex systems with human beings in them that you can never precisely predict. Uh, well, you can precisely predict lots of different things, but things will happen in unpredictable ways. And, uh, and actually, yeah, you will always be wrong. And actually, the most valuable thing we could do in that project was to come up with some uh, ideas about what the future might hold uh, that were not precise uh, in terms of predictions, but that we could use as heuristics to say, well, let's prepare for as many different futures as possible. Uh, and in so doing, actually, we become way, way more resilient as policymakers, as communities, etc. Uh, and so we use the models in a completely new way. And uh, the project went down really well. We got papers, we got policy impacts, and so on and so forth. Uh, so from uh, instead of just adapting as we tried, uh, let's try it this way, let's try it in that way, let's add some more resource, let's uh, just keep trying to adapt, we couldn't do it. And uh, ultimately, we transformed our goal and did something far deeper and far more useful uh, at the end. Uh, taking this now to organisational culture, um, I was in charge of a, an, an institute uh, and I tried to do what I could to change research culture there. Um, that worked and we then got catapulted into a new university strategy where we were at the centre of it and all of a sudden I found myself in a bunch of fights with the old guard who felt threatened by what we were doing. And I quite quickly realised that I did not have enough power to win any of those uh, those battles. Uh, and, uh, and instead of trying to keep fighting, trying to climb the managerial hierarchy to change the culture of one institution, I left that institution and set up Fast Track Impact to try and change research culture in particular around impact, but at a deeper sense as well in terms of my relational empathic approach at a global scale instead. And actually, for me, transforming my goal to say, you know what, uh, this is a battle I cannot win within my own institution at this level of seniority with this amount of power to say, well, what could I then do elsewhere? Uh, for me, was still very much in line of my with my values, but I transformed that end point to find something that enabled me to grow deeper and move on rather than just say, well, you know what, I failed. So... Um, this is about how to transform failure and defeat, and hopefully you're getting a sense of, uh, of what I mean here in terms of not just building stronger or adapting. We're, we're thinking very differently. We're reframing stuff. Uh, so this is not just lying down um, and accepting defeat. It's not about uh, playing safe to avoid uh, failure. Uh, and that means that uh, if we are... Uh, cognizant of our values and enacting our values, we will inevitably find that we bite off more than we can chew sometimes, 
or we have to pick a fight or enter into a battle or battle comes to us because people don't like what it is that uh, that we are doing. Uh, so um, uh, the first question that I have is, well, how do you uh, pick your battles, uh, where you have that choice at least, uh, in line with, uh, with your values? Uh, and uh, and for me, this is uh, a twofold thing. So there's a there's a heart and a head thing, uh, and uh, and I think that yes, I need to engage with my brain and ask myself, you know what, uh, what are my chances of success here if I uh, pick a fight with this particular bat- uh, person institution um, uh, with those resources behind them? What are my chances of actually winning this? Uh, and maybe I I hold back until I know a little bit more. I've learned a bit more. Uh, I've, I've got a better strategy here. So I think um, it's important that we don't just go headlong with our hearts into things that uh, that are inevitably going to spell disaster for us, for our colleagues, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But I think at the same time, we need to, to temper that with a sense of what our heart tells us. And going into challenges uh, biting off things that actually say, yeah, this is now who I am. This is what is most important to me. This is in line with my values. And if I don't try this, then I'll never know if this might have been possible, if I might have been able to achieve that thing that I've always dreamt of and that expresses fundamentally who I am and what I stand for. And I think at that point that you do that knowing that there are risks uh, and uh, and of course, then knowing that if you lose that fight, then you were fighting for your values. And of course, that then becomes a fight you can never lose because whatever happens, whether I win or I lose, whether I succeed or I fail, I have held on to my values and I have expressed my values in defeat. And I've learned something fundamental, fundamentally deep about myself and perhaps shown something to the world that others can learn from, even in that place of defeat. But of course, that means we need to learn how to lose graciously, because if in defeat we actually go into ourselves, we become bitter, we become twisted, and uh, and we start lashing out um, and and doing other things uh, out of our ego, because yeah, let's accept defeat is is bruising. Uh, then, then actually, we will have lost, uh, and we'll have lost everything uh, at that deepest sense. So uh, going into a fight, biting off something that might be bigger than, uh, than you can chew on the basis of your values, uh, you need to do that knowing what your plan B is, knowing what you will do if, in fact, this goes wrong for you, uh, and what you will do to protect and enact the very values that took you into that, uh, that high-risk uh, situation. So the question then is, when to stop fighting, uh, when to admit defeat, uh, and then how to do it? Uh, And for me, it is most clearly when you realise that to continue trying to chew that thing that you realise you are incapable of chewing, uh, that challenge that is insurmountable, uh, and the evidence is now staring you in the face, 
when you realise that the the, rain, the the forces ranged against you are too powerful, that continuing that fight, continuing to to face that challenge will compromise your values. You have to back off. And being pig-headed enough to continue pushing through despite the challenge, despite the fact that now people are getting hurt around you. Now this is is actually compromising the, the very reason you went into this. That's when you need to be able to have the humility to say, I stop. Another way of looking at this, um, and this is something that uh, I've been reading about in a book by Richard Rohr called Falling Upwards, um, which, as you can imagine, uh, deals with, uh, with failure in a very positive way, is that you need to stop fighting when you realise that to continue to fight will hold on to old hearts and express superiority complex and complexes. Uh, and that actually you realise that the reason you are continuing is only to protect your ego. Uh, and unless the, the value that you are expressing uh, is your ego, um, uh, in which case, uh, yeah, God help you <laughs> and good luck to you, uh, then, then actually what you realise is that uh, to stop the fight uh, is to go on a deeper journey uh, of humility that enables you to, to learn something about yourself and, uh, and to transcend your ego. Uh, as Richard Raw says in this book, and I'm going to quote him here, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Can you stop fighting that fight, criticising the bad, uh, taking that principled stand uh, when in fact you can see that, that you are never going to win this? Um, uh, when you realise that actually that principled stand is no longer as much about those principles and in fact is more about protecting your ego and avoiding the embarrassment of failure. So how do you stop fighting? withdraw from the challenge in line with your values? Well, it's a very different type of process. It is about ignoring or withdrawing your energy from the things that you are fighting that have turned this from a fight for your principles to a cannibalistic fight against your principles rather than now continuing to fight that battle directly and continue to address those challenges and shoo that thing you've bitten off directly. To quote Richard Rohn, I'm going to just read a few sentences from him here. We all become a well-disguised mirror image of anything that we fight too long or too directly. That which we oppose determines the energy and frames the questions after a while. You lose your inner freedom. Most frontal attacks on evil just produce another kind of evil in yourself, along with a very inflated self-image to boot, and incites a lot of pushback from those you have attacked. Holier-than-thou people usually end up holier-than-nobody. My questions to you as we think about how we withdraw from challenge and accept failure. Are there decisions that you need to make where inaction is in fact compromising your values 
on a day-to-day basis the longer you go on doing nothing. The extra mile that you know you should go in that project to reach those hard-to-reach groups that you don't really have time to reach, but actually that you realise would benefit more than anyone else if you could just find a creative enough way to reach them. The postdoc that you should have stuck up for in your last project meeting as they were criticised by the rest of the group. The unjust decision that you have implicitly accepted that needs to be challenged. And of course, if you decide that there is something that you need to do as a result of this, a challenge you need to take on, uh, a fight you need to to take on, because not to do so would be to compromise your values. And you need to be aware that you may not be able to rise to that challenge. It may not be possible. Uh, You may uh, end up looking defeat in the face. And how will you deal with that in line with your values? Uh, So my second question to you is, are there battles that you are already fighting that you realise you can never win? You've been pushing on and uh, just continuing business as usual, hoping against hope that this will somehow happen. You've tried to get as strong as you can and you're not strong enough. You've tried to adapt, find every way possible to get around the problems, to find a new way and another new way, and this is just not working. You may have started the process with the best of intentions in line with your values. And although you started very much by expressing your values. You can see now that the process itself is now compromising your values. You're becoming bitter. You can see that root of resentment beginning to to grow. You've begun to lost your passion, your focus. This whole thing is in fact just stealing your joy, making it a, a, a sigh as you get up and think about going into your work day. So how can you re-express your values in the way now that you make up your mind to withdraw from that process, to admit defeat? And even just thinking about that uh, could in fact just be incredibly challenging. And ask yourself where that challenge lies. And I suspect there's a high probability that it is somewhere in your ego. How much is your ego holding you back from admitting defeat? And might there be a deeper lesson in humility and in self-knowledge if you could have the courage to, in fact, take that step back? In part two, I want to explore this uh, a bit more. I'm going to think more deeply about how we step back, how we withdraw, how we change tack, and how we can reframe failure and defeat as something that more deeply affirms our values than anything that we've so far done in the battles we've been fighting and the challenges we've been trying to uh, uh, perhaps hopelessly uh, achieve. 
And I'm going to draw on um, the philosophy of pessimism uh, to do this. There's some some really fascinating stuff. I'm not a philosopher, so uh, and I know that I have philosophers uh, in my audience, so I apologise in advance. Um, but but I think whether or not I get the philosophy right on this, the ideas here are transformational, and that is my goal. I want you to transform your thinking about failure, about defeat, and to start thinking about this in a way that can enable you now to accept that, yeah, you don't achieve everything you intend to. Uh, life is full of failure. Life is full of suffering. Uh, and yet, in that failure, in that suffering, in those dark places, we often find the deepest form of joy. And actually, we can, in fact, express the values we started that journey with even more deeply. Thank you.